Give the people what they want. Give the people what they want. Give the people what they want. Your weekly movement news roundup. You're with Give the People What They Want, coming to you from People's Dispatch. That's Zoe and Prashant. I'm Vijay from Globetrotter. We're slowly trotting our way to the 200th episode of Give the People What They Want. Very special to have Zoe um, in Peru. I'm sure that you've been following her coverage on social media at the People's Dispatch handle on Twitter and at peoplesdispatch.org. Exemplary coverage uh, of the aftermath, or in fact, the coup process in Peru. Zoe, uh, let's give you as much time as we, we can on this show to talk about what you're seeing, what you're finding. Share a little bit about your superb reporting. Well, thank you for that introduction, Vijay. Um, it's been definitely a very intense week here in Peru. Um, I just got back this morning from Ayacucho, um, where 10 people were shot down by uh, the military. Um, and I'll start with this story because I think it's quite emblematic of what's been happening over the past two weeks. Um, so as we've been covering on this show and on People's Dispatch on December 7th, there was a legislative coup against Pedro Castillo. Um, he was arrested shortly after. He remains in prison until today. Um, and following this, Dina Boluarte, who was his vice president, was sworn in as president. Um, and they removed Pedro Castillo's presidential immunity. Uh, and <clears throat> proceeded. So that happened on December 7th. And maybe they were unprepared or maybe they didn't have a notion of just what Pedro Castillo means to the people of Peru. Um, but in response to this, there's been mass protests across the country, um, above all in the southern region of Peru, uh, in Arequipa, in um, Ayacucho, where I was, uh, mass protests because people are angry that the Congress, which is dominated by the right wing, which has an extremely low approval rate, about 10%, there's 90% of people who don't approve of the Congress, um, <clears throat> basically decided that they could take Pedro Castillo out of power. Um, and they see this as a culmination of, of you know, uh, 16 months of, of harassment, of putting pressure on his government, of not allowing him to do what... Um, he really was voted in to do, which the people of Peru voted him to do, which was change the political system, make Peru a country uh, that's a rich country that can be where there can be no more poor people. And so in, for example, in Ayacucho, uh, they had been mobilizing. There had been some uh, small demonstrations happening following this announcement. And they had seen, there were uh, people had told me that they saw the brutal, brutal repression that was faced by people more to the south in Arequipa. Um, in other uh, regions, and they got very angry with this, that they were that the people were being shot down by police, that the people were being shot down by the army. Um, and in that moment, their regional uh, governor actually goes to Lima and says that, in my province, the people are content, they're not against Dina Boluarte, we fully support her, and that's that. And so in response to this, on December 15th, there was a national strike in Ayacucho, and university students marching around the center of the town, uh, more people joined in and people decided to, uh, as had happened in other cities, uh, try to close the airport. And it's, you know, this is an extremely symbolic act to close an airport and say, this is not normal, what's happening is not normal, you can't actually carry out a coup d'etat and expect that the people are just gonna stand by. And so they attempt to close the airport 
But um, little did they know there was armies stationed kind of all around the area of the airport, all around the area of the town in that region. And they started to shoot people down. Um, and this day, uh, at least seven people were confirmed dead on site and several more were brought to the hospital. And since then, the death toll from this day, this massacre is 10 people. Um, you know, they're 16 year old kids, 18 year olds, people who are coming back from work. I spoke to many of the family members yesterday and it was, it was really heartbreaking. Um, and, you know, as Ayacucho is, a, is a, an area which has already suffered a lot of the, um, the internal armed conflict that took place in Peru. It's an area where people are, used to being called terrorists and used to being uh, accused of be committing violence. And that's exactly what happened is that in this massacre, there was a repetition of, okay, we can kill them because they're just terrorists. We can kill them because they're trying to commit uh, illegal acts. And um, it was really um, heartbreaking really to speak to people and to hear this. I spoke to one woman whose uh, son has actually been disappeared since the nineties and now her grandson, her grandson was killed in the protest on December 15th. Um, so I think it's important for people to hear this story because it's, it's, it's happening, it continues to happen. There's still being very violent repression of the protest against the coup. And meanwhile, uh, the government of Dino Duarte has continued to stigmatize, it can continue to criminalize um, protesters, calling them terrorists, calling them criminals. Um, and at the same time, of course, the Organization of the American States has recognized on um, the government of Dino Boduarte almost immediately on December 7th. The U.S. Embassy has released statements saying that they're concerned for the well-being of the Peruvian people. Um, but at the end of the day, they've supported this government and uh, it seems like there's kind of no turning back uh, in their eyes. Um, Pedro Castillo continues to be in, in prison. Um, he has denounced uh, on social media that his rights are being violated. This, of course, through uh, different lawyers and people who's been able to send letters to. Um, so it's a very concerning state of affairs. And of course, we're just one day away from Christmas and a lot of people, you know, take a mental vacation, take some time off. And even here at the road blockades, a lot of them will be suspended for the holidays. But we have to make sure that this story doesn't get lost because it's truly, truly um, devastating. I think for a lot of people, it <clears throat> brings back memories of what happened in Bolivia in 2019 with the horrible massacres against um, the people protesting the coup. Uh, and so, yeah, it's very important to keep in mind. Um, you know, in the story that you, you wrote um, for People's Dispatch, the story called We Are Here to Support Our President, um, you mentioned in front of Barbadia prison where Pedro Castillo is being held, uh, people were suspicious of the media. What has been the media coverage within Peru? Outside Peru, it's basically the Western narrative. But within Peru, what has been the state of the media coverage? Well, it's it's interesting. Not only in front of Barbario were people uh, suspicious when I said that I was a journalist. Kind of every single place that I went, they said, are you from this outlet? Are you from Channel 4? Are you from Channel 5? If so, we do not want to talk to you. We have no interest in the fact that you're going to manipulate our words, you're going to do this, do that. There's a lot of distrust of mainstream media and they are perfectly uh, correct because if you look at the, the covers of all of the uh, major newspapers, if you turn on the TV, I mean, it, it should, people should have to face charges for the things that they're saying. It's, it's outright lies, it's slander. I mean, if you look at the the action and the, the behavior of these media outlets during um, the term of Pedro Castillo, it was really, they were all used to, 
uh, attack him, say that he was corrupt, say that he's a thief. So it just becomes common discourse to say that he's a thief and that he's corrupt. We've of course seen this in many different countries, but here it's it's quite extreme. Um, and since the protests have started, uh, the mainstream media has essentially operated to uh, confirm this discourse of the far right that anyone who's going to the protest, anyone who's participating uh, is a terrorist, is a criminal, is committing acts to harm the citizens. I was in a, a taxi this morning listening to the radio and, you know, not one mention of the 28 people who have been killed by police and by the army, but they go on and on about the uh, damages the economy, um, the disruption and transportation, the fact that Christmas is coming. And that should be really the main concern is that the disruption to economic life of these protests, they don't talk about what's been happening um, with this disruption to democratic law and order or to the loss of people's lives. So it's it's really, really uh, serious and severe. Right, Zoe, also uh, key demand seems to be on the question of the constitutional convention and new constitution also, which is something even Castillo had been talking about. And it's interesting because I think this has been a demand that has come up in so many of these countries. So in Peru, what does what shape does this demand take? Well, for many people, the, the con and I apologize for the noise. Um, <clears throat> for many people, the constitution of 1993, which was imposed by Alberto Fujimori, uh, who was the last uh, civic uh, dictatorship in uh, Peru, really represents kind of the enshrining of neoliberalism, um, really giving a lot of power to far-right forces in the country. For example, in Peru, there's only uh, one body of legislature um, one Congress instead of maybe having a House of Representatives and a Congress. Um, this, of course, makes gives the Congress enormous amounts of power. So even when you have a left president like Pedro Castillo, he's essentially able to be blocked at every turn because they have uh, only one uh, legislative body that can block things. Um, of course, the question of natural resources is huge. And so many people I spoke to said uh, the reason that they're, they did a coup against Pedro Castillo is because all of these different concessions and license expire next year and they want to continue taking the riches away from our country. And Pedro Castillo said that he wouldn't let this happen and he wanted to protect our resources and give them to the people. And the constitution is also plays a part in this that gives uh, multinational companies a free hand uh, to come into the country to pay very, very low royalties and essentially take this wealth outside of the country for their own benefit. Um, and there's many other things, of course, the access to health, to education, to many basic rights that the people in Peru do not have. Um, they really want to have a say over how the political system works. And that is definitely the most uniting demand across the board. Uh, whether it happens in new elections where they vote on a referendum if they want to have a constituent assembly or whether it's installed immediately, people are very, very firm in this demand and believe that there can't be true democracy and true justice in the country if they continue with the same constitution. And of course, we can look to the example of Venezuela. We can look to other examples across uh, the continent of what these constitutions have actually been able to create, uh, to create bodies of people's power, of uh, changing the way people see uh, political institutions and society, giving more uh, po possibility to people's participation in politics. So this is, of course, a very key demand. It's an important story, Zoe, on the ground. Please follow People's Dispatch on Twitter. Um, go to the website to look for the stories. Now, while this coup is unfolding in Peru, uh, Vladimir Zelensky of Ukraine paid a visit to um, the U.S. Congress. Now, it's the first visit he's made out of Ukraine ever since the Russians entered on the 24th of February. 
the calendar is interesting most likely mr zelensky came to uh, washington dc because in january the republicans take control of the house of representatives and there's less appetite i must say please emphasize the word less not no appetite less appetite among the republicans uh, to open the spigot and send another 50 billion dollars of arms and and weapons um toward the ukrainians uh, in order to in a sense um you know lobby the republicans in the congress mr vladimir zelensky made this move to uh, to washington dc his speech was interesting i'm going to get to it in a minute there were some surprising moments uh, in the speech in the theatrics of the speech number one of course he came to congress wearing military fatigues not something that one has seen uh, ever actually and secondly the speaker of the house nancy pelosi and the vice president kamala harris unfurled a ukrainian flag inside the us house of representatives a very curious sort of um, national sovereignty by the us government there lots of promises made to continue to arm mr zelensky unclear again if the us congress will continue to arm him in the speech he made a couple of points that i'd like to reflect on number 1 he said that the uh, ukrainians have won uh, the battle for the minds of the world uh, over the russian invasion now what he means is that the ukrainians have been able to convince people around the world that their view of this war is correct and the russian view is false just a few sentences later then he said that well we still have to convince the global south i found that interesting when he said that ukraine has won the entire world of course he meant the western states uh, not the entire world and then just a second later he said that there's still a battleground to be fought and that's in the global south um that was part of the reason why the united states brought african leaders to washington dc the previous week for the us africa summit where they pushed them to adopt the us narrative regarding um ukraine it wasn't entirely successful it's a tough road i should uh, give them that it's not an easy job uh, but mr zelensky you know acknowledged that in his speech he also once more reiterated this question of a peace deal in fact uh, while he was in washington dc the ukrainians put on the table that there's a chance that in february they'll put a deal on the table now he also made the same comments to the g20 in bali by a video conference he's made this comment many times before the credibility of it can only be judged by uh, putting a peace deal on the table we haven't seen one yet um, unlikely of course that uh, there'll be one quickly in fact they've already put a calendar which is to say let's look at february that means after the winter um, that means that europe is going to struggle through this winter uh with a lot of difficulty because um of course energy prices continuing to be high therefore the strike wave britain still convulsed in a strike wave protests in other countries mr zelensky's travel to washington might actually bear fruit in terms of billions of dollars of weapons it's unlikely that it's going to result in a peace deal i had initially thought that it, there was interesting coincidence because dmitry medvedev of russia traveled to meet xi jinping in china on the same day and just the day before vladimir putin went to belarus i thought this was a great winter ceasefire that was being organized that might not be the agenda it might in fact be 
um, to convince the Congress, once Republicans gain power, not to close the spigot for tens of billions. Uh, by the end of, of the next year, it will be over $100 billion given to the Ukrainians, if not much more than that. You're listening to Give the People What They Want, brought to you from People's Dispatch. That's Zoe and Prashant. Zoe sitting in Lima. Um, follow People's Dispatch on Twitter to get the latest. I'm Vijay from Globetrotter. Well, um, at a press conference, Biden was asked about the U.S.-Mexico border, Prashant, and he didn't answer. He just turned around and walked away. What is this stuff about Article 42? Right. Uh, that's a, not, not a surprising position at all by Biden because it's one of those issues which I think exposes the hypocrisy of the Biden administration to the maximum, the kind of rosy words they use, whereas what actually happens on the ground. But for the story, we go from, you know, Washington, D.C. and the halls of power to the southern borders, where uh, Title 42, which is a provision whereby the U.S. government can use a health emergency to sort of expel migrants and refugees, for instance, directly without much process, uh, is still in place. Now, Title 42 was introduced, I mean, Title 42 was invoked by the Trump administration uh, citing the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, of course, at that time, even at that time, experts were very wary of this argument that somehow it was the migrant, you know, the, the, the issue around refugees and migrants was in some way connected to COVID-19. But it was very convenient for the Republicans and sections of the Democrats to argue that point that, you know, we, we somehow had to pre prevent this supposed surge of refugees from all these poor southern countries who would disrupt the situation. But uh, this is exactly what uh, the Republicans argued and Title 42 stay and the invocation of Title 42 continued. Now it's 2022. <clears throat> uh, most countries have gone back to business as normal in various ways. Of course, we are going through another wave of COVID. Again, it's a different matter that due to the horrible uh, you know, health situation in the United States, uh, people continue to die due to COVID associated issues. But keeping that aside, there's been a large amount of opening up. Now, the question really is, why is Title 42 still being invoked? Because what it does is severely affect the rights of those who want to seek asylum, those who are sort of trying to escape from a variety of circumstances from countries south of the United States. And let's be very clear about it. A lot of these circumstances are due to U.S. policies, are due to U.S. policies of intervention, are due to U.S. backed policies, financial policies, which have caused economic crises. But the fact is that... <clears throat> Uh, Title 42 continues to be on the books. The Supreme Court intervened to keep it uh, you know, in place for a couple of days. There's a lot of uncertainty as to what will happen. Now, to come back to Biden's position, the Republican position on this is quite clear because they've always been, you know, they've been, uh, they, 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 they resort to the usual racism, the usual scaremongering about refugees, this argument that there are, there are all these people coming from other countries who are out to take your jobs or out to you know, destroy society, etc., etc. In principle, uh, in terms of statements, the Democrats say that they're not like that. You know, they want to welcome uh, refugees, etc. They don't believe in all these lies uh, you know, circulated by the Republicans. But in practice, the Biden administration itself does not really want to uh, lift uh, Title 42 either. So there's a strange, strange position where we see that the, both Republicans and the Democrats who seem to have such, who on paper, who in statements seem to have such different positions are actually more or less on the same page when it comes to this. And uh, we do also know that even if Title 42 is lifted, it's not going to be too much of a difference for a lot of migrants and refugees because they still face the threat of these kind of evictions, they still face the threat of these, these kind of process. But at least 
there is a possibility of a process and you know we don't really don't know what's going to take place in the meanwhile we have thousands of migrants who are kind of stranded in the border who are sort of you know hoping to you know whose fate remains really uncertain and i think all this uh, you know kind of uh, in some senses uh, demonstrates of course the fact that migrants have now become migrants and refugees and now become a very comfortable political tool for both uh, for both sections both political parties who keep using them we saw some weeks and months ago greg abbott the governor of texas bust uh immigrants uh, you know migrants to uh, cities on the coast saying to make a political point to sort of show that you deal with them and the response of the democrats was absolutely not inspiring at all at that point of time so it it does look like when it comes to practice the two parties really do not have any differences on this we'll be having a video from eugene pril of breakthrough news explaining how this is a larger crisis of capitalism and us capitalism itself and so for supposedly uh the united states which is this country of migrants that's how they like to pride themselves is you know that's part of our heritage but we do what we do see is that when it comes to today's realities due to the policies they uh set up when migrants come they have no hesitation in shutting the doors it's very interesting uh, putting zoe's story back in with yours prashant because um you know when the united states destabilizes countries in south america and central america um migrants start to move up and i'd like to say that this year 2022 has seen a record number of peruvian migrants uh 10000 of them sitting at the border uh, unprecedented numbers of peruvians those numbers are going to just increase i mean the more destabilization the greater the problem and and you know it's it's a question of oh it's not a question of politics at one level of the people that migrate they are fleeing situations of great desperation i'm going to come back to you prashant if that's okay because um you know one of the only news sites in the english language that reports on the country of sudan takes seriously the ongoing process of political um you know uh of, of political the political process of sudan uh, is people's dispatch and you know you're looking carefully at the uprising there tell us a little uh, given that this is a kind of anniversary of the uprising right avijay in fact the uprising broker i think just Five, four or five months after people's dispatch was founded it from the beginning uh, i think especially our reporter pavan was very much in the thick of it and uh, this this december the just a few days ago marked the fourth uh, anniversary of the, what is called the sudanese revolution the uprising it's kind of hard to think back uh, you know that was before covid before uh, so much happened in december, at, at that point in, uh, you know in 2018 say this first week of december 2018 Omar al-Bashir the dictator had been in power for decades nobody knew how long he would continue people thought you know he might continue until the end of his life and then there were these protests that broke out over oh, oh what is now euphemistically called the cost of living crisis but uh you know uh, these were basic issues of bread and butter of prices they uh, they escalated they became they you know the, the entire left large sections of the population rallied together it became a much larger political issue uh around the same time we also saw protests for instance breaking out in algeria in some other countries as well but what distinguished sudan's process i think was that despite so much that has happened over the past 4 years there has been this continuation of organized protests on the ground on the streets which has been really interesting we do know for instance that uh you know there have been multiple stages and multiple phases of this into in april 2019 omar al bashir was overthrown the military used this opportunity to consolidate the protesters didn't let them do that there was a massacre in june uh, again the protesters pushed back against the military 
finally forcing the military and the centrist forces to strike an agreement. In uh, October 2021, the military uh, you know, upended this agreement, staged another coup. And since then, we've had about 120 people dying, thousands injured. On the anniversary of the, on the, on the day of the anniversary itself, I believe about 500 people were injured, according to some estimates, especially by the kind of, uh, the, by, the, by actions by the security forces, which seemed very predetermined and uh, were done to cause as much harm as possible. So the point is that despite, you know, a variety of phases in this struggle, despite governments coming and going, despite the fact that international players have by and large been taking the side of the Sudanese military, the protests on the ground have continued, neighborhood resistance committees, trade unions, the left, all of them sort of continuously maintaining the pressure, keeping the slogan of no compromise, no negotiation, no partnership with the military, which has been the fundamental slogan that they have raised because all the other maneuvers by uh, the centrist political parties with the support of the international players, even the UN for that matter, have focused on getting some kind of a compromise between the military and the centrist parties so that the military <clears throat> does not formally remain in power, maybe, but uh, it continues to be the real power in the background. And now there's a new agreement which has been signed, whereby supposedly another round of democracy is going to come back, a transitional authority, civilian ministers. But the protesters are extremely skeptical of the fact that whether the military will actually be forced to divest itself of any control, whether the military, for instance, whether the military itself can be brought under civilian control. The agreement says that it's going to be possible, but everyone is extremely skeptical. There has been, you know, the kind of reform of security forces that uh, the protesters have been asking for, no real roadmap towards that. Justice for the victims of various massacres and human rights violations, no real roadmap for that. In fact, it looks like the burden of all this justice is being placed on the families of victims who apparently seem to have the responsibility of actually you know, working on this. So a lot of these issues which have been raised time and again uh, by these protesters, no real answers. There's one more round of agreements which will probably come up next month. Similarly, there's a question of the Juba Accords, which were meant to integrate armed groups into the governing process. The protesters are very unhappy with that because all it has done is given them a, sh a share of the power and they have continued to support the junta and the regime, so to speak. So, uh, you know, a very uh, volatile and you know, fluctuating situation in Sudan. But I think uh, one must say that, uh, you know, from all our experiences over the years, we've seen what happened in Egypt, we've seen what happened in 2011, we've seen what happened in Algeria. But the fact that these protesters have continued intensely for four years is quite a remarkable thing and I think definitely needs to be highlighted. It's a very important story. And, you know, the government has been firing stun grenades and, you know, all kinds of terrible things. It's uh, it's a real counterpoint to the experience in Egypt. And one, of course, that People's Dispatch will keep reporting from. Um, turn quickly, last story of our show today. Um, Penny Wong, the foreign minister of Australia, visited Beijing, talked to Wang Yi, the foreign minister of China. Now, the very fact that Penny Wong went to um, went to China and met with Wang Yi is being uh, reported in Australia as a great feat because there has been a a freeze of of ties between Australia and 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 China largely because of Scott Morrison's rather ridiculous statements about China being responsible for the COVID pandemic. In fact, it goes back to 2012 when Australia decided to ban Huawei. Uh, Huawei 5G technology. 
Australia is a member of the five G five eyes intelligence network with the United States, New Zealand, um, the United Kingdom. And it therefore uh, felt under pressure from the US to cut ties with Huawei in terms of 5G technology. Well, that actually began to freeze relations between Australia and its largest trading partner, which is China. Penny Wong went to Beijing. There were really no agreements. There was no uh, agreement by the Chinese to roll back on some of these um, trade restrictions that China has on, on Australia in retaliation for Scott Morrison's comments, in retaliation for the cutting of, um, of, of, uh, of Huawei and so on. So interesting that she went there. There was a lot of conversation, but in fact, nothing. Uh, I was pretty surprised to read in the Australian newspaper, um, the, uh, the foreign editor, Greg Sheridan, who has very close ties with the intelligence uh, services in Australia, had a line in his article in the Australian. He said, this is the time to start preparing for war with China um, now. A pretty stunning line, in, in my opinion. Uh, you know, given that it has just been basically accepted that the United States is going to be positioning B-52 and B-1 bombers in, 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 in the Tyndall Air Base in northern um, Australia and the Darwin province. Um, I just want to also say that they're also expanding Pine Gap, which is the large Five Eyes um, satellite intelligence place in uh, northern Australia, which the U.S. uses for its spying operations on China. Um, just leaked on um, from the Australian archives more evidence that Pine Gap was land stolen from Aboriginal people and Aboriginal elders still today are not given access to sacred sites that are in Pine Gap. Um, when Mr. Zelensky was in Washington, he said we are fighting a war for democracy. Certainly not democracy for the Aboriginal elders who would like to go and worship at their sacred sites. Uh, you're listening to Give the People What They Want. Coming to you from People's Dispatch, that's Zoe and Prashant. I'm Vijay from Globetrotter. Really happy to be with you. We have one more show of 2022 next year. And then we're going to take you into 2023. But we're not coming back if we don't see any more selfies. See you later. Yeah.